Women are powerful and have accomplished great things. Yet, sometimes we suffer from self-doubt, fear, and limiting beliefs. We often believe that we are not good enough. These negative beliefs stop us from achieving our goals. Welcome to Sprinting to Success, a podcast dedicated to women who have experienced struggles, yet found ways to step into their power, their greatness, and learn to embrace challenges. These women will share their stories and give you insights to help you on your path so you can follow your dreams. And now, here's your host, Esme Lawrence. Welcome. My name is Esme Lawrence, the host of this podcast, Sprinting to Success. My guest today has growth advisory firm Echelon Management has taken many companies from worst to first in turnarounds and has worked with dozens of Fortune 500s, over 53rd generation companies, and hundreds of eight and nine figure high growth companies to raise the bar in strategy, culture and innovation initiatives. My guest today is Mark Faust. Mark, welcome. Great to be here. Awesome. So tell me about your childhood. Uh, I'm an only child in Cincinnati, uh, grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio, fifth generation Cincinnatian. And uh, I had, uh, in a way, a, a perfect childhood in some ways, other than the uh, fact that uh, I was blind in one eye. I never knew that uh, that was something special or different because everybody treated me pretty much the same and played sports and did everything like everybody else. But uh, other than that, uh, had a, a, a great idyllic uh, childhood. Right. Now, when did you find out you were blind in one eye? Well, the, the, the great story about it is, is that my, my mom was persistent and followed her intuition uh, because at two years old, she knew that when she would cover one eye, I wouldn't move the hand and the other eye, I would move the hand. And so she went to the doctor again, insisting you got to look in there. And she did or he did, and, and she said, uh, and I can even see the back of his pupil, and he laughed in her face and said, you're a worrywart mom, get out of here, he's fine. She immediately went to the phone booth, looked up in the yellow pages for a, uh, another ophthalmologist, called him, described the symptoms. He said, get over here right now. After an examination, he left the room for 15 minutes, came back and said, you're gonna get a second opinion at 7 p.m., and if he sees what I see, we operate tomorrow at 6.30 a.m. at Children's Hospital. She wow. saved my life with her persistence. I was just perhaps a couple of weeks away from a retinoblastoma hitting my brain and killing me. Oh. You're, how about that's, that for how about that? to be grateful to? Very grateful. And that's a, you're a yeah. smart mom. Just don't take Amen. somebody's word for it. You know, she knew yeah. there was an issue and she, she wanted to find out. Heart. Right. Exactly. Wow. So that's a story I use with, with business uh, folks, both men and women, to say to, you know, you know most of the time what the right path is. And even if somebody's saying there is no danger or that can't be done, uh, usually with a second, third opinion, you, you can confirm that there is a chance and to, to go with your gut. Right. Go with your gut. It's, it will keep on the on the right path. So, yeah. Mark, so... What were some of the challenges that you had in high school? Um, well, I, I uh, even though I tested as a genius, uh, 
I'll never forget being pulled into the, the, uh, the my counselor was actually one of the state of Ohio's greatest basketball coaches. And he would take our team to the state finals quite often and uh, brilliant guy, but a big, you know, uh, towering six foot, six or seven foot guy that uh, was somewhat intimidating to most, but we hit it off. And, and he said, you know, for your IQ, you should be getting straight A's and, and uh, even in sophomore year, I took the SAT and I, he said, with this score, you could go to Harvard. But getting good <laughs> grades was tough for me. Uh, I, I, I think I had ADD and, and two of my five kids have been diagnosed with it. So I, I think that was the tough thing about high school was, was the fact that it bored the bejeebers out of me, what we were reading about most of the time. But I always had another few other books that I would be juggling at any one time and continued uh, studies in the more unorthodox side of, of history or English or business or whatever it may be. And so that kept me uh, interested, but uh, that would be the one of the big struggles. Right. Boredom in school. Yeah. Because you were so smart. And, and the I don't know if I was, I was curious <laughs> and I knew there was a lot more. It was more about curiosity. And, right. And, you know, wanting something that was more tantalizing. It was more mm -hmm. about the, I think the ADD type of thing. Right. And of course you want to be challenged too, right? And, and your teachers yeah. weren't challenging you. Right. right. Okay. So fast forward, mm -hmm. young, ad young adult, adulthood, what were some of the other challenges in your life? Uh, well, I, I, you, you know, speaking of frustration, it was such a blessing in a, a class in college that I ran into uh, my, one of my most important mentors, my first and only real boss in the consulting world, Howard Bond. Um, he was a 50-year-old man in a three-piece suit coming into college classes, and it was kind of odd. And um, I uh, got to serve him a few drinks at a bar, and we hit off a conversation there where I was bartending. And um, he invited me into his office and, and luckily hired me. But the, you know, the challenge was um, being the young 21-year-old kid. I was the only... Uh, uh, white guy and a group of a half dozen black guys who were all in their fifties with their MBAs. So feeling wow. out of sorts was, you know, something that uh, had been burdened with, but I felt blessed because Howard, his brother, and a couple of the other guys were really quite generous with their business wisdom. And I learned more about everything from negotiations to, uh, the importance of interpreting Peter Drucker to public speaking and you name it from those guys. And, and, and it was a catapult into my starting my own business. So I was very grateful, right. even though it might've felt awkward at times. Right. So then how did you overcome that challenge being a 21 year old uh, with a bunch of, um, you know, black guys and way older than you. So how did you overcome that challenge? How did, how did you end up having them trust you? I bought really nice suits. I dressed up. <laughs> I played the part. I looked him in the eye and I loved them like brothers. I mean, we, you know, we, we, uh, we didn't go out to lunch a lot. We ate in our, in our desks and we had a, a, a office where four desks were shared. And, uh, you know, we would talk a lot amongst each other. We would hear each other working. We would learn from each other that way. Um, but with Howard, especially with, you know, I'd go down to his office all the time with questions, uh, challenges and, and, uh, um, and, and an open ear. And, and so that's, that's kind of how I, um, uh, survived and thrived was curiosity and, and, uh, 
and reaching out and they were great guys to work with. Right. And how long did you stay with them? About two and a half years, almost three years. So. Right. And mm -hmm. then, so moving forward now, what were some of the other challenges when you, when you um, actually moved forward with your life? And started my business. Uh, so um, my wife quit teaching not too long after I, uh, we, we got married in 1990 in April. I'd started the business, put it in the, uh, the phone book in February, January or February. Phone book came out uh, a couple months later. And, and I thought, now's the time I got to start dialing the phone and, and setting appointments and trying to sell something. And um, we, uh, you, you know, we didn't, I didn't know how to charge. I didn't know enough. Uh, Howard had told me not to try to start my company too soon. That's how he talked me into working for him. And, <laughs> and um, uh, between him and interviewing a lot of great turnaround CEOs, uh, I learned I felt like enough that I, I had some tools that I could bring to any business and help it grow. Um, but still, nevertheless, you, you, you don't know what the charge for consulting or training and coaching and all that type of thing when you're that young in 1990, 24 years old. But, uh, uh, you know, through, through some lucky deals and, and some great mentors, I kind of stumbled into making a little bit more and more money. And, and eventually we were able to survive. Well, shoot, my wife hasn't had a full-time job since. Oh, awesome so, for her. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, so what yeah. were you trying to sell when you started your business? The first thing I sold, I thought I can't sell into the CEO. I'm, I'm not old enough and, and don't have the experience, the gray hair to, to do that. But I could go to any VP of sales. And even though I felt like I had knowledge and experiences and insights that I could offer to anybody to help them grow, I proposed a process of sales strategy and sales innovation which was rooted in a discovery process by interviewing the top customers, interviewing the top sales performers, and, and coming back with a handful of, of insights that we would discover, along with other things I, I knew of. By interviewing turnaround CEOs, for example, or uh, quickly after interviewing a handful of anyone's customers, you, you right there have some ideas that could help them grow. But... Uh, you know, that's, that's uh, having a listening ear and not saying I had all the answers myself, but that the answers usually were within. Uh, now it's almost like the opposite. You know, when you get some actual gray hair, uh, <laughs> you could just tell people things and they start doing them. It's so much easier in a way to implement as a consultant. But so many of the things that I'm sharing with clients are the same thing that I was saying 30 years ago. Right. So how do you make or how, what do you say to a entrepreneur who wants to grow his business? What are the tips that you give them? It, you, you know, it comes up a lot with the um, angel groups I speak to companies that are in the nascent stage. They don't even have their first customer and whether that's the case or you've been around for 15 years and you just want to take it to the next level. I, I think the top thing you can never, never stop doing is listening to your customer and uh, strategically. And in fact, this is a required step in strategy that every uh, quarter that you interview a certain percentage of your customers and, and ask them for insights about how you could raise the bar, innovate the relationship and help them grow their business. So if you have a brand new company and you've never really sold anything, that's one of the things you can do 
with a, a prospect is to ask them, you know, would you be interested in uh, this kind of service or offering? What would the value of that be? How would you ideally want to see a, a relationship uh, like that structured? What would that be uh, worth paying for? And, and you can kind of pre-sell most of all your, your business just through selling by survey. So uh, the process of depth interviews, that required step in self-assessment or uh, as Peter Drucker, you know, Peter Drucker was the first one to use the word strategy in relation to business. But as his publisher said, you, you can't use strategy. It's a military term. <laughs> Instead, he had to come up with uh, self-assessment, the more apt term. And so um, uh, just following that required step in strategy will help you, uh, you know, discover new business and grow existing relationships and innovate new offerings. So if you want to sell, okay, you don't have any customers and you want to get new customers, you start surveying mm -hmm. the people that might be interested in your product. Yes. And that's yes. how you, you pick them up and end up yep. becoming a customer. Why is yep. that? Well, um, it, too often, whether you're an inventor or a discoverer of a technology, whatever it may be, um, there's almost a pride to a fault in what your baby that you've created. And you need to step back and really take an objective look and let the customer, the prospective customer, discern what the, the real value is. And so, uh, and that's one of the four most important questions of any business is, uh, number one, what business are you really in? And it's not about the tool. Uh, it's about the job that is completed by the tool. So you've invented a drill. What does that uh, mean? Well, you know, people don't buy drills and drill bits. They, they buy holes. You know, they want the result of the tool. So it's oh. not how sexy that drill is, which is too often what happens. You know, the, you look at, at, at a hardware store and the selection of drills. They, they have these fabulous packages and bright red drills and, and they look sexy. But in reality, people just want an efficient way of getting those holes done and, and the quickest, cheapest, safest way. And, and it's not about the tool. And now that, now actually that metaphor, maybe sometimes it is about the tool. Some people do <laughs> want that toy, you know, they do want to look at it on the shelf, but in reality, what's the job to be done? And then number two, who is the customer, the ideal customer? And almost every company can improve their performance just by identifying and stratifying the ideal customers and the ones that are easiest to sell, shortest sales cycle, marquee value, and, and can pay faster and bigger and larger projects. And then what do they most value is really, I got to talk to Peter Drucker once. He called me once to apologize. He misunderstood a, a letter I wrote him about uh, quoting a book that he was written about. And he thought it, I was quoting his own book, which wouldn't be allowed if, if you know, these large chunks I was gonna be publishing online. And he called to apologize. And I asked him of the, of the most important questions for any business, which one's the most important? <laughs> and he says, well, you know, they're all important. You can't say any one question is the most important. I said, oh, really? Come on, really? You got you to say that, that who is your customer and what do they value? For? He says, well, you know, really, if there was one you know, people don't focus on enough that, that has so much value behind it, it is what does the customer value? And he kind of waxed that poetic about that particular question. But uh, how many of us really know what our customer most values about what we do? And if you're a startup, you just can't ask enough about that, that type of question and, and, and uncover enough insight from the customer directly. 
that will lead to sales. That will lead to, to business if you do so, it right. So then how would you discover that? Like, what are the questions to ask when you don't know the questions? Well, um, I, I've done this with, with over 200 companies uh, where I've interviewed their customers. And what I start out with is I say, I've been retained by the ownership of the company to talk to some of the best customers, uh, the ones that have the most important and strategic relationships to, um, uh, you know, as part of a service improvement and innovation initiative. And, and we want to hear about what is it that uh, could be done in the future to raise the bar in the relationship, to take uh, how we're serving you to, 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 uh, to take what we're doing to the next level. The, to a new dimension of performance, true innovation. Uh, how could we ultimately really help you to grow your business? And, and as, soon, as soon as I say those words, they, they light up and they usually say, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> and, and they're thrown off a little bit like, my gosh, you're asking me how, how you could help grow my business. And as they start to, you know, and I say, well, why don't we just start with why did you start buying from my client in the first place? Let's start out up you know, what attracted you to them and what, what, what are their advantages? What are they doing well? That might lead into some things that they could do even better. But let's start there. And then th that gets the door open. And then before you know it, they're like, you know, if they could actually join me on some of my sales calls with some of my biggest prospects, they could actually help close the business because they're the ones that, that have to help, you know, design the final um, assembly or product or whatever offering. And so they could really help me win some business. And so I've, I've, there's been dozens of, of examples of where my client's number one customer has doubled in size, for example, by um, doing nothing more than helping them win a piece of business. And we obviously get to participate in that piece of new business. And it's so significant for both us and the, their customer that uh, it, it's a tremendous win-win. So, you know, that's kind of how you can segue into the conversation. You don't know what to ask. I, 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 know, I don't know about these, most of the, the technical side of the businesses I work in. I've worked in military related companies, agriculturally related companies, software companies, service companies, banking institutions. Right. And, and I really claim to be ignorant in the industry. I'm, <laughs> I'm only an expert in management process or marketing and strategy or, or innovation or people and culture. But but not the, the, the product. Right. And, and yet it's that soft stuff that really is where the, the greatest opportunities lie with, with the customer relationships. Definitely. So what is the biggest barrier to growth or growing a business? It's, it, it depends on the, the industry and the, and the time uh, of, of, of history at that point in time, you know, like right now, the greatest constraint, 80% of the the CEOs would tell you is our greatest constraint is, is recruiting. Uh, it's, it's recruiting and keeping good talent. So it's people. It's getting enough people. We knew this time was coming 20 years ago when uh, uh, we just looked at the demographics of the baby boomers retiring and the baby busters, not enough you know, babies being born after 60, uh, two, three, you know, four, 1964 and, and, and on. And so we have a dearth of people. We need more people. We have all these jobs being created and it's exacerbated on, on both ends of a growing economy and a, a dearth of people. So now that's the biggest challenge 
uh, capital is not that big of a challenge. But at other times in, in, in history, in the cycles of the economy, it can be capital. Um, and at other times, it, it can be the, the lack of innovation. Uh, hubris is what, you know, and pride is what, what in general, you know, uh, brings about a lack of innovation and, and thus, you know, a recession on a macro level or a, uh, a downturn in a company's, uh, you know, fate on a micro level. Right. So tell me, how did you get started in, in um, consulting? How does one get start starting if they want to decide they're going to be a consultant? How do you get started? Well, in sixth grade, the priest asked all us boys, you know, if we felt like we were going to be uh, men of the cloth when we grew up and that we should discern our future. And I thought, and he said, in two weeks, I'm going to ask you all what you think you're called to do. And I thought, oh my gosh, I got to come up with an answer of what I'm going to do for the rest of my life here in sixth grade. But I thought and prayed about it. And all I could imagine was working with a lot of different companies and helping them grow or maybe selling their products. So I, I don't know. I didn't know if that was going to be a manufacturer's rep, you know, repping out different, you know, products and services to other companies through, you know, for a handful of companies or what. I knew that people did that. Um, I imagined what consulting looked like. And it wasn't until, you know, I got into college and heard and started to read about consulting, but there's so many different types of consulting. I didn't know what it really meant. Uh, I, I barely a consultant was when I was one. And, and I finally got a business card from Howard that, that said management consultant. But it was after reading uh, all of Peter Drucker's books. That was one of the assignments Howard gave me is go back and reread all of Peter Drucker and let's talk about it. And when I realized that there was a science to management that wasn't even taught that well in school in regards to the, the clarification of objectives uh, and, and the process of strategy, self-assessment uh, and, and the, the clarification of a vision uh, and a mission and values and, and then the, the codification of a, a culture and direction of, of a people and, and, and their thought behavior. And that that stuff is where people have the biggest challenge. You know, you know the first thing that most companies uh, end up having me do is to, to go through uh, role and, and objectives clarification. And so when I realized that was where the rudder of the ship was and that people have huge problems with that. And I, I, I saw that firsthand with our fortune 500 clients at, at the firm when I was 21 years old, working with, with vice presidents of HR, uh, recruiting everything from C-level executives uh, on a, a retainer basis down to product managers for, for companies like Procter and Gamble and Drackett, et cetera. I, I realized that, uh, you know, the people challenges, strategy, and, and innovation were the big, big thing. But again, it, 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 you know, it was hard for a young person to break into that unless you're doing it through after B school, through McKinsey or something like that. So I went after the, the sales and marketing growth levers. And, and to me, that was easy to get into. And, and I, I literally wrote a book uh, called The Seven Principles of Top Echelon Sales and Marketing Team Teams. And, uh, uh, that book was the basis of a, a, a facilitation process we would engage in with, with companies. And I would take them through that three, three phases of, of uh, 
of, of growth. Um, you know, first assessment, listening to the, the customers and the team. Right. Uh, second in implementation and, and rolling out ideas and testing them. And then three in, in kind of recalibrating and tweaking our, our implementation and, and then repeating as necessary. So that was my first product and my first offering. And, and I sold it right to the, the VP of, of sales. And sometimes they wanted to call it training and other times they wanted it to be more of a process. And what eventually happened within my first half dozen clients, uh, a, a couple of CEOs said, you know, we're not even doing the strategy process you described uh, for our company, let alone in the sales side. Could you help us with the, the management team? And so that's how I got invited in over to the, the C side of C-suite. Right. So how do you change a negative culture into a more positive culture? Identify the conflict. You know, uh, it's easy to ask any leadership team or anybody of any team and just say, where, where are the conflicts? Are, first of all, are there, is there conflict in the, the workplace? And of course, people laugh. There's always some conflict of some level. But then to get people to actually identify, write down when it happens, why, not just who, but what happens differently between bef the, the before and the after of the conflict. And when you start to, to identify these, these conflicts, there's a pattern and it tends to be around certain types of things or issues or uh, positions or whatnot. And it's always can be rooted back to a violation of an expectation. Uh, a violation of a value that might be stated or not. But uh, all, you know, the culture is determined by the belie beliefs uh, that ultimately lead to the behaviors of the people. And so what establishes beliefs are statements of beliefs or values, or sometimes they're just called agreements. Uh, you know, a lot of, so, so the process of changing a culture is one to do values clarification uh, and, and you do is that. This, by is asking. this company's value or the individual's value? Well, both. In, in fact, uh, most companies have a set of value statements, but they're not following them. So they're in a way irrelevant. So throw them out the window for a while, get the group of people in a room. Uh, there was a, a, a 150 year old Italian company I was working with last year. And we had a, a one of the more cosmopolitan management groups uh, I'd ever pulled together that work and and you know we had people from eight different countries and, and whatnot in this this group of 20 or so ex executives and PhDs and and I asked them just two questions and and this didn't take more than three hours on a you know we had a two or three day retreat covering a lot of different things but we had a lot of conflict we had to deal with so the the two questions we had to answer uh, that we allotted a few hours to d deal with was number one, how do we want to treat e be treated and treat each other when we're at work? And we, we should say the same for our customer, but, but number one, how do we want to treat each other? What, what are our expectations? Make a list of the six most important uh, uh, value statements that you can think of in regards to how you want to be treated. Now I showed them a dozen different examples from past clients, Procter & Gamble, um, Zappos is one of the best places to work. And, and from those examples, they stole ideas and came up with their top six. Why is Zappos a um, company to work for? Um, well, Tony Shea uh, had already, uh, you know, created hundreds of millions of dollars in wealth. And he, he wanted his next company to, to be one where everybody was happy. And it was more about the purpose of, 
uh, behind people having a, a you know a great place to work where they they woke up to our purpose and not an alarm clock and and really had a lot of joy in the workplace and so that was his his primary customer was his employee not the customer in fact strategically you always have to ask the question of the stakeholders the investor the customer and the employee uh, who is our prime how do we rate rank them in priority and it could be a different answer for any company and it could be the right answer but for them it's you know number one is the employee number two is the customer number three is the investor and of course he was the primary owner so it didn't matter it was his choice right yeah he wasn't reporting to an investor group so zappos became the fastest growing most profitable um you know billion dollar shoe company ever and, had, and you know, oh oh it's a shoe company yeah, Zappos, okay. Z-A-P-P-O-S okay. dot com, bought by, um, and that turned Tony Shea into a billionaire. Then, and then he made a billion dollars from this, you know, approach to business. And he still runs the company. He only sold it with the agreement that he could still continue to run it. Right. And I've met him and I've asked him, I said, you know, what, what are some of your keys of maintaining this culture and so forth? You know, you, you got the values clarified. Uh, the second question, <clears throat> after how do we want to be treated is how will we deal with it when somebody doesn't live up to the values and and they have a very unique approach to dealing with it they approach the person personally one-on-one or uh, two-on-one if there's intimidation or concern about you know approaching everybody signs an agreement to live up to the values and everybody signs an agreement to be willing to be approached and all that type of thing and and i did this with my italian client we made everybody sign kind of a social contract or letter if you will right and and it didn't take 48 hours to actually have a conflict in my client situation that we followed the process and it took care of itself so much more cleanly and expeditiously and without a lot of undue emotional conflict. Well, of course, the employees, um, they bought in to, uh, to everything that you guys were saying because they brought that to the table, how they want to be tend, treated. People tend to support that which they help to create. That's right. I love that. To let them be the part of the process. And I brought up that company because they had values that dated back to the founder in the 1800s, but they had become a bit, you know, they became a bit detached. The, the team had become de detached from those values. It, they weren't real to them. And right. even though half of the values they identified were in the original statement, it, it, it was because they wrote them down and put them in their own uh, on the, with their own spin that they, they had more ownership in them. So um, having a positive culture comes from the bottom and it goes up because yes. the employees actually, they, um, they create the culture that they want. Right. So Mark, how do you decrease stress in your life? Work. I love work. work. I love interacting with my clients and I get energy from people. So yes. Um, wow. You know, yeah, I walk at night with the dog and, you know, taking a couple of miles and, and that's relaxing, work out at the gym or something like that. That's relaxing, have some drinks with friends. That's relaxing. But it, it, it there's nothing um, more stressful than to not talk to your customer and take care of your customer and hear what their challenges are. Um, and nothing uh, more invigorating talking to them about either their successes or challenges or issues, but you're always going to make some progress in doing that. And as you make progress, you feel great and you just want to do it more. And so 
work is uh, self-healing. I mean, when you're sick, work. I, it, it's funny, I had a real terrible flu back over the weekend. I had a lot of travel between uh, Orange County and Chicago and a, a big keynote to 700 folks at a conference and, and uh, 10 straight days of work. And I, I, I got a little stressed, I think, because of the uh, not sleeping enough is what the problem was there. Well, sleep is important. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and probably being on the plane and, you know, all that kind of thing and getting exposed to a virus. But, but on the Saturday, I had a, a, you know, I was just sore as could be, but somebody had a call and it was kind of urgent. And, and I thought, you know, I'm going to take the call no matter how sore I am. I'd rather be talking to them than not doing anything. And I felt great after an hour. Now I went back back to bed and I was sore as could be with that flu, but you know, and then on Sunday night, I think and it happened again. I was totally lying in bed all day, but had a phone call and got, by golly, got on that call and, and invigorated myself, went back to bed. And then on Monday, I thought I was going to sleep in late, but got up for a series of calls and boom, just took off and I felt great and I was fine ever since. You're a so man that is, loves what, what he does, obviously. I love people. Yes. You love people yes. and it gives you a lot of energy. So Mark, Amen. what would you like to share with our audience today? Well, um, you know, the process of strategy uh, applies to anything in life. And we can uh, narrow down strategy to just three words. Strategy is about vision and focus and divergence. And so all of us need to cast a vision of the future that's compelling, that draws us to it, that inspires us. And so it doesn't matter if it's the vision for your family vision for your business, a vision for your uh, hobby or your, your club or your church. But the fact is, is, is we're all leaders in some way and we're, we have a responsibility to visioneer. And unlike the, uh, the best-selling book, which was full of BS that was called uh, Hope is Not a Strategy, BS, hope is the first part of strategy. Hope in casting a vision of the future that's better than the present is absolutely part of strategy and it's critical to to its its initiation right and then after a vision there's a a realization of what assets do we have and all our resources of human physical and financial resources uh you, you know where are our strengths and where are our weaknesses and how do we intensify our focus again our focus on the strengths and mitigate the the impact of the weaknesses right. and so double down on your strengths. Uh, you, you know, there's a concept I write about in my books on strategy about the primary source of leverage. Every company has one primary source of leverage, not four, not three, not two, one. Only one can be primary. And whatever that is, intensify your focus on leveraging that lever and pulling, uh, moving the company with that, that greatest of leverage you have in that primary source of leverage. Right. And then, Finally, divergence. How can you be different from the rest of the industry? Different from all other families, uh, different from other nonprofit organizations. And so identify how you can take a sharp right turn and take it uh, and be completely different and, and, and capture market or whatever your, your mission is to do. I love that. Have a vision, be different. Thank yes. you, Mark. Thank you so much. Hey, what a delight to be on your uh, show, and you are a jolt of champagne. With oh, your, 
questions. Oh, Mark, thank you. You made my day. <laughs> All righty. Well, Godspeed. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Sprinting to Success podcast and have an amazing day. I am Mark Faust. I am known for turning around companies and growing great companies to an even higher level of performance. And I am sprinting to success with Esme Lawrence. Yahoo! Thank you so much, Mark. I love it. Thank you for listening to Sprinting to Success with your host, Esme Lawrence. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show on iTunes. For more information about Esme and to hear other episodes of the show, go to EsmeLawrence.com. The information in this podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional or medical treatment or advice. Always seek advice from your healthcare provider.